Creative Babble. You're just laying there in the dark, and I would have these... I had a reoccurring nightmare of, of men chasing me, and a lot of it through just different, like, woods and fields. Marie Walsh wakes up in a cold sweat. Her heart is pumping as fast as it can. It was kind of a, you know, a bad dream. Every night, it was the same dream over and over again. If only she could roll over and just tell her husband the truth. But she can't. Tonight, she's going to have to suffer alone. Marie Walsh was running. And um, I, I finally, I eluded them. I got away from them by um, going down to this, this stream that I was very familiar with when I was a child, that I hung out at every day when I was third and fourth grade or something, real young. And uh, I thought, and it was real dense woods. So I thought I would know how to, I, I knew that I could evade them now because I knew the territory and I'd finally gotten away and I was finally free and they wouldn't be able to catch me. And I woke up feeling really happy. So I thought that was kind of interesting that my dream after all those years of being a nightmare, I'd finally gotten away. But what was Marie running from? After all, she was just a middle-aged suburban mom who lived a pretty unremarkable life. The label that I got was the soccer mom. And, uh, you know, basically that's kind of what I did. Every day pretty much revolved around her kids. I was a stay-at-home mom just doing volunteer in their classrooms and taking them to soccer and water polo and uh, piano lessons and orthodontists. It was not that glamorous or exciting or, um, you know, I, I just carpooled the kids, basically. And it was just this very average life. An average life, which she worked really hard to keep. But tonight, she's not going to run. Tonight, she's going to take a deep breath and enjoy the beauty surrounding her. I was at my daughter's piano recital. And it was just this wonderful family moment. And she played a piece that was sort of um, Chopin's Nocturne, which is really kind of sad and melancholy, but rich, just beautiful. And I started thinking how wonderful my life was and how lucky, you know, it's just my family's great. They're so little angels I'm with and my husband and... Um, you know, I had one of those, like, it really hit home, and I just uh, breathing it all in. But on that same night, when she got home, her recurring nightmare returned. Except this time, she was wide awake. And then, um, it was right after that that I get this phone call, you know, just like the bubble pop. Marie picks up the phone. It's her brother. He tells her that the men from her nightmares are coming for her. The police are, you know, screaming at my, that they're all out there threatening to go into his house. And he's, he's a very religious and, um, you know, he just, he has these three children and his wife and they're just five police cars at his neighborhood. And, um, they're saying they're going to go in and search his house. Marie Walsh, whose real name is Susan, was not just a stay-at-home mom. She was a fugitive running from the law for 32 years. I'm Javier Leva and this is Pretend, 
Stories about why people pretend to be someone else. It was upsetting that, that um, you know, to get this call and have this keep this reoccurring uh, nightmare keep emerging right when I was just trying to feel a little bit comfortable and a little take it for granted that uh, everything, you know, how I, I have, you know, my life is stable. I, I just, I can relax now. It's been so many years. And I just wanted to feel that I didn't have to always feel like this was like I was living on borrowed time. Susan has been running from the law most of her adult life. And her family didn't even have a clue. Only a few people knew the truth. Her parents, her brother, a few friends from her past. But her husband and kids were left in the dark. She had too much to lose. She's come too far to get caught now. Did your family know about your secret life at the time? Uh, well, no, you know, <laughs> when do you bring that up, by the way? But it, it would serve no purpose for me to tell them, and there could be a lot of complications, and then they could be legally, it, it would put them in jeopardy also. But I, I didn't want my family to, it, it just, I didn't want it to define me that I'd been, you know, done time and a <laughs> prisoner and escaped a penitentiary. I mean, I just, that was just some weird thing that happened to me. I just couldn't imagine being torn from my young children. Authorities kept calling different family members trying to locate Susan. They're not really sure if she's in the country or if she's even alive at this point. But her family keeps calling and telling her they're coming for her. I mean, what do you do when you get a call like that? I mean, do you just go on living life as normal or do you hit the road and, and run for it? Well, I considered definitely hitting the road for a while, and I did start staying away, um, but, and, and I should have. I should have hid. So it wasn't a, a big surprise when they showed up at your door. I had knowledge that they were looking for me at that time for quite a few months. So what the heck did she do? Did she kill someone? Did she rob a bank? Or rip somebody off? Nope. She's just an ordinary girl who got involved with the wrong crowd. Back in Michigan, where she grew up, Susan found herself in the middle of an undercover drug sting. And the results of that sting didn't go well. She was arrested and sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. And how much drugs are we talking about? 500 grams? A kilo? Mm-mm. She says she was busted for two and a half grams of heroin. That's basically a teaspoon of heroin. And get this, she says she wasn't even the one selling it. It was her friend named Richie. Richie sold the teaspoon of heroin to the undercover agent for 300 bucks. It was only worth $50 on the street. It was a stupid move. A move that landed them a sentence that would have put these 19-year-old kids in prison, potentially, into their 40s. And just to give you an idea, a first offense like this in Michigan would carry a sentence for up to four years in prison. Four years, but she got 20. 
I'm not going to run like an animal. I was innocent, so I'm sure the records will bear that out. It's been 30 years. I've been had an exemplary life. And uh, I figured I would just face it and get it over with. Now a housewife living in the um, the suburbs, keeping it secret that I was a fugitive, I, I did try and strive for as normal of a life as I could. Is it in the back of your head that, hey, one day they could show up? Well, I always told myself that it would be when I least expected it because you're always thinking, you know, is this going to be it? Or you see a police car driving by and you're thinking, is this it? Is this it? I mean, but I know that it would be when I least expected it. And sure enough, one morning while planting succulents in her garden. You know, it was just a very normal um, late morning day. She gets approached by a man holding her mugshot. This is it. He tells her, I'm taking you in. Another agent appears as they walk back inside the house. Susan's daughter, Katie, was in the next room and she walked in to see what was going on. My daughter was 19. The same age her mother Susan was when she was busted for drugs. And I just told her not to worry, that it, wasn't some, it was something from a long time ago. And So what happened after she was arrested that night back in Saginaw, Michigan? Susan spent the night in jail and posted bond the next morning. A week later, Susan says she found herself in a windowless room, sitting across from a man she believed to be a prosecutor. She says the man behind the metal table told her that he knew she wasn't selling drugs. All he wants her to do is give up information on her Mexican boyfriend. It was simple. Tell us everything you know about your boyfriend, and we'll drop the charges against you. Susan's Mexican boyfriend had a very familiar name. His name was Javier. Javier Carreras. Hmm. Oh boy. This would be Javier. I'm yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely Javier. Yeah. It was very well, unusual. They're a great name, huh? <laughs> exactly. So it was a guy named Javier. Yeah. So but he, he played a very important role in your story because that's how you kinda got wrapped into this whole mess, right? Yeah, but yeah, I, I I guess I would be guilty of liking to date guys that are sort of, you know, I was adventurous. Javier was just real attractive and um, exotic, you know, and uh, and took me nice places. And then he had cocaine. You know, I, I'm sure he was a, uh, a man about town dealer, a small time dealer, just, you know, maybe it's probably, but I mean, because you don't. He had a business, and, and a, you know, which they usually everybody does, but uh, they don't tell you, yeah, I'm doing this as my deals, and I go here. They don't tell you their business, especially when it's not legal, and I didn't really know him that well. But we, I know he did bring out cocaine, and it felt wonderful. But according to Susan, they didn't even have evidence against her. She didn't have the drugs on her the day of the arrest. They had nothing. However, the prosecutor wasn't going to take no for an answer. He told her that if he decided to take this to trial, they would bury her. If she pleads guilty, she would only get probation for a year. I pled guilty when I went back a few weeks later thinking that I was getting the probation as promised. So again, the deal is to plead guilty to a crime she says she didn't even commit and she'll get probation. Simple enough. Susan didn't question it. But when her court date arrived... The prosecutor asked for the maximum sentence, and there was no mention of a plea deal. Susan recalls the judge saying, 
Although you're young in age, I have the duty to society, and I'm sentencing you to prison. They gave me 10 to 20 years. Susan was off to the Detroit House of Corrections, afraid and alone. The whole time she was in jail, no one would visit her. Her family pretty much disowned her. It was terrifying. Susan says that guards would enter their cells and showers and molest and rape inmates. She always wondered if she was next. Every day she was consumed by one thought. She will be a middle-aged woman by the time she leaves prison. But despite her desperation, there was no way out. Yet that didn't stop people from escaping. She heard stories of some girls who had jumped the 20-foot-tall barbed-wired fence, only to be caught soon and returned to prison. They, but they were full of information as far as um, escaping, and they told me, um, you know, they, they told me stories about horror stories. They love to scare you, and the dogs um, would be let loose, and people got caught on the barbed wire and dangling there at the top and couldn't get off. She pretty much gave up hope for leaving. Until one day, someone came to prison to visit her. They told me I had a visitor, and I don't even think they told me who it was. And so I went out to the visiting room a little bit, you know, 20 minutes later, and here's my grandfather and my Aunt Mary Alice. She didn't know how to react. She felt pretty ashamed. My grandfather, I should say, you know, was a um, pillar of community. I mean, he never, ever broke the law. But her grandfather wasn't there to lecture her. He was there to break her out of prison. And, and my grandfather um, really coaxed me to, um, you know, that I should escape. Escape? Yeah. He was determined to get Susan out of there. You see, Susan's father and uncle both convinced Susan to accept a guilty plea. And then they just disowned her. Grandpa knew Susan was falsely charged, and no one, not even her own father, was doing anything about it. Grandpa wasn't just going to sit there and watch his granddaughter rot in prison. He broke because it was his son and his son and his other his two sons, the, the, the lawyer, my uncle that's a lawyer, and my dad, who kind of were um, not helping me at all. And he came and he broke from everyone else and said, no, this is wrong. What's happening to Susan? And um, he came and he said, and I'll even help you. If she was going to escape, she needed to come up with a plan. It was out in a desolate area, and it's like getting out of the area because, you know, there'd be a lot of police cars and everything, just searching all the roads and things and all these woods around there. Did you tell him, are you crazy? Like, like what was his plan? Plotted out that I would go in the morning hours um, before dusk because at night they were much keener. And in the morning I kind of saw that people were a little more lax and things were they didn't expect much in the morning and uh, i had a special job where i went and worked at this clinic every morning i was going out before the sun came up and i knew that um you know i picked a time that i would go and i would just go for the fence and run to it it was um there's quite a ways from the the units and the walkway to the fence it was quite a big area so that it, you know for security and so I'd run to the fence and, and had to, you know, get over the, the barbed wire tall fence. Susan used her jacket to cover the barbed wires, but it's not as easy as they make it look like in the movies. You know, I 
still remember doing that, cut my hand on the barbed wire. I just still remember just jumping to the other side and the, the ground was kind of still frozen. It was, uh, I think it was February and, uh, you know, I had to make sure that there wasn't a, a snowfall at the time of year because you don't want to be escaping in snowfall. <laughs> they just, you know, they just follow your track. Were there any like search lights or? I, I heard the siren go off uh, after I was running a while and I hadn't reported to work and, uh, um, it had given me time. At least no one saw me under the cover of, of darkness of dusk, at dawn. And, uh, so then the siren went off and the lights went on and, um, um, uh, mainly I could hear the helicopter, but helicopters are the most inefficient way. If there's any trees, I mean, it's just, I don't know how they catch anybody. Um, maybe now with heat sensing uh, devices, but at the time I just hid behind, um, hid over under, um, up against a tree when the helicopter went over and then started running again when it moved on. And I just kept running and running, and then I thought I was going to fall out from exhaustion, but I kept running. You know, my lungs were going to burst, but I just kept running. You know, I just um, knew that um, I had to find that extra energy. And then when I saw my um, grandfather's car in the distance, it was just a wonderful feeling, and... uh my aunt was, she had the rosary right up to her face and was saying it on the passenger side of the car. And, and, uh, my grandfather was in the driver's seat and I, you know, just jumped in the back seat and he drove off. And, uh, that was my driving off to freedom and saved my life and gave me a wonderful, wonderful, you know, rich life. And for the next 30 years, she nearly got away with it. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. This is what fascinates me about fugitives. Escaping is the easy part. Getting away with it? Well, that's the long con. I had to ask Susan about the logistics of creating a new persona. First, you need a new name. I used my middle name and made up a last name until I got married, and then I just used that. You have to, like, figure things out. And in order to get money, you need a job, right? But you can't get a job without a proper ID. So how did you get around for so long without any, like, 
social security card or driver's license or birth certificate? Well, it was a little different then. She needed a license, so she took her chances going to the DMV. She filled out the application, turned it in, and hoped that it went through. And it did. Remember, things were a little bit more lax back then. You could go into a company in the 80s and say, um, and they'd say, we need your social security, and you'd give them a fake social security number and they wouldn't find out for a year. For a long time, Susan jumped from job to job. She would give them a fake social security number. And then, around tax time, the office manager would come around and tell her that her social security number bounced back. Susan would tell them that she would just look into it. And then the next day, she never showed up to work. She just kept bouncing from job to job, undetected. And they wouldn't find out for a year and a bit when they go to do the taxes. <clears throat> and I would just make up a number. Now it's when you're really living that double life, right? You're, you're, you go under your middle name, Marie, but you really have no money and, and you really have no plan, right? But then, after a few months, things started to settle down. Susan met a businessman named Philip, and he was loaded. He had two yachts, one in the States, one in Australia, a home on the water, and a business. They started dating, and, well, one thing led to the other, and eventually he asked her to marry him. But if they were going to get married, she had to tell him the truth. But, you know, I told Philip then, when we were really serious about going to get married. At first, he couldn't believe it. He had so many questions. He wanted to hire a lawyer to help her clear her name. But that would take time, and it was risky. But there was no easy way out of this. Philip just started pulling away the more real her situation became. The relationship never really stood a chance. But time went on, and she met the man she would eventually marry. His name was Alan, Alan Walsh. And when things got serious with Alan, she never really kept her troubled past a secret. I told him that I'd left Michigan and uh, my boyfriend got arrested or, you know, and that he was sort of in a, in the, using drugs and stuff. And I, so that there was somewhat shadiness or in the background and I left there to get away from it all. But she never really told him the truth either. Did you feel that same kind of responsibility of trying to tell him about your past? I felt it, but I knew that I tried it. It did not work well. It was disastrous. It destroyed, you know, helped destroy a relationship. So I knew that I could not do that because um, it just had two long-term consequences. I um, So I did tell him that things weren't, you know, that I'd had a lot of problems with my parents and such. And he basically kept saying, um, I tend to be a little long-winded and he said i don't care about your past i've met your parents and they're fine it's you know now is what's important i know who you are and, and so i kind of like okay great i'll tell you another time <laughs> and it just never happened but uh you know yeah we had kids pretty soon and everything and uh you get kind of sidetracked and i i didn't think it was a good idea you know to yeah. tell him i didn't know what the benefit would be Fast forward 25 years, three kids later, Alan walks in one day on Susan frantically packing her suitcase. Remember, she just received a call from her brother saying that the authorities were looking for her. She figured she needed to get out of there before they break down her door looking for her. He knew something was up and I just had to say, you just got to trust me. Um, you know, it's nothing between you and me. 
and um, I just got to take care of some stuff that's, you know, I've got to take care of. Alan doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't even know her real name. He begs her to give him answers. He pleads, Marie, what's going on? Who was on the phone? What are you doing? She says, I tried to tell you before, but you didn't want to know. He said, it's all right, just tell me now. I mean, there's something serious going on. I need to know. What is it? Susan was worried that if her family knew any details about her double life, they would be charged as accomplices. So now everyone in the family knows that she's in trouble. They just don't know why. For the next couple weeks, Susan was living out of a hotel. She thought, this isn't going to work. Who's going to feed the dog? Who's going to pack lunches? I need to go back home with my family. It was time to stop running. Then one spring morning in 2008, while Susan was gardening, her two worlds came crashing together. The U.S. Marshal outside her house pulls out a badge and asks her if she's Susan Lefevre. She says, no, I'm Marie Walsh. She stepped into the police car and she was transported from San Diego back to Michigan. Obviously, I'm talking to you right now and you're not in jail. So what happened? Like, how how did this get resolved? Well, they transported me back to Michigan then against what the parole officer looking for me said that, oh, they'll probably release you right away. They took me back. It took a week and I was in shackles for seven days, 24 hours a day, seven days. They'd get me in a room, the guards, several guards, and tell me I wasn't leaving there alive. They'd put me in with people that were known as um, very violent, that they never put with people. You know, it's important to note that Susan says that she actually tried to turn herself in several times through a hired attorney. But she says that the DA back in Michigan didn't want to touch the case. This is the ironic part. And instead, they spend millions of dollars checking all over the country with my relatives. When I had called the prosecutor in Saginaw, Mike Thomas, and offered to turn myself in twice. And he said, stay away. And uh, they did not want my case. I, I don't think anybody would ever advocate for becoming a fugitive. But, I mean, looking back now, I mean, do you, would you do it all over again? <laughs> That's a weird question. <laughs> she told me that she appreciates the life she lived outside of prison, but wouldn't want to relive the pain and suffering that she put her family through. It, it was it was a good thing in, in many ways that I was able to not be a fugitive anymore. And um, that is, you know, it, it was, yes, embarrassing to have people know that your mom was an accused drug kingpin. Do you still have a, a relationship with your kids? They were they're still sort of overwhelmed, I guess, by the whole thing. Yeah, I do. It's just they still, you know, they never want to talk about it. They, they feel... Uh, they just, there are still residual feelings, and I I kind of think, you know, I, I don't know. And I just feel like it was a tragic thing that happened to our family, but, you know, I went through a lot, too. My middle daughter, she's always felt, like, very supportive of me and felt like she totally gets it that, you know, I hadn't done anything that a lot of her and her friends hadn't done and it was just a bad deal type of thing. And she's proud of me that I, I made the best of it and went on to have a good life. But um, my other kids are still, it's, it's and, and even my husband, it's, it's all just been, it was just a little more than they could, uh, they were 
it's still sort of overwhelmed, I guess. But if Susan would have never gone through this, she would have never discovered her true passion, prison reform. Since leaving prison, Susan has championed for a woman who also got a raw deal. Her name is Tracy Cohen. Before getting arrested, Tracy had a clean record, but she got wrapped into her boyfriend's drug dealings. Because of her crime, she now faces 40 years in prison. She could be serving less time, but she got busted before the state of Michigan loosened their sentencing laws. Been working for a couple years now on a woman who's in prison for um, some cocaine in her basement that her boyfriend put there. And whether she knew about it or not, I don't, you know, I, she, she's been in prison 17 years. Beautiful, articulate woman. I'd met her, you know her, she's remarkable. She's in prison 17 years now. So when people say that there's reforms happening all the time, that they're no longer um, being as bad as they used to be. Did you know, women have been the fastest growing incarceration population in the country. Since the 1970s, the number of women inmates has exponentially grown from 8,000 women arrested in 1970 to nearly 220,000 women incarcerated in 2018. Women, women, incarceration went up, um, I think, 700%, whereas men went up 400% during the um, 80s. But women went up 700% from when the drug war started. The vast majority of women, like Tracy, are in jail for nonviolent offenses like drugs. And typically, the punishment is disproportionate to the crime. This woman, and I'm sure there's many like her, but her case is just, I, I know her children, and they just will not let her out. One-time offense, no proof that she was even involved. They knew it was her boyfriend's, that he kept it in her basement, where she had her three kids. Congress recently passed a bipartisan prison reform bill called the FIRST Act. And this will bring much-needed relief for prisoners and their families. But we as a country have a long way to go. This bill is really just that, the first steps. They don't even bother to investigate the big traffickers because they get just as much compensation for putting in some guy in the street of Detroit some woman like Tracy with her three kids has got to dope in the basement somehow. Susan began writing her autobiography in prison. It's titled A Tale of Two Lives, The Susan Lefevre Fugitive Story. Next time on Pretend. So these are all these. These are all warrants. All these people are. are you have to Yeah, they're line? classified. I just pull one out that day. Let's just say Ashley Walker. Jack Soltarelli is a bounty hunter. It's a His job is to hunt they down fugitives. They don't go to court. You got to hunt them. This, so, this is a warrant that we what, run with. What's she in for? Well, I don't know. It's usually just says failure to appear. So you don't we know. Go, no, just... it could be murder. It could be DUI. We, we find out. We pull them up on the screen at the jail to see what we're dealing with. But uh, you never know. You don't and know it's what all you want. We got guys in there. Homicides, rapes, just everything. Um, 
petty larceny, fraud. But that could be kind of dangerous, right? Like you're, you're just pulling up a folder and well, you're, you're supposed to find this person? Well, this is all I do. This is all I've been doing for 29 years. And um, some are funny, some are serious, scary. Um, when you're going in a house, whether you got with three or four guys with you, and you're going in dark closets, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to see that flash. You don't know. But you're doing it because you like what you're doing. You love it. Uh, I've been across country chasing child molesters. I'll go after them all day long. Rapists, I'll go after them all day long. But if I have to go out 10 times that week, I love it. It's what I do. I'm cleaning streets. And people don't realize how many, you saw the boxes. They don't realize how many people are running out there, fugitives, that are just blending in with people, committing crimes to survive because they can't work regular jobs. They're out there. They're all over the place. They're like insects. And we go after them. But Jack is not your ordinary bounty hunter. He's hiding his own secret. And on our next episode, he's coming clean. I hope you guys are enjoying the Fugitive series as much as I am. This episode was edited by Logan Casterdale. She is awesome. And of course, music by the great Joe Basile with the chicken.net. So, last time, I mentioned that I'm trying to collect stories about lies, just like we did a couple seasons ago. And I've gotten a pretty good response, but there's still time to call in. Leave me a voicemail about a situation where someone has lied to you, or maybe you lied. Maybe it was a little white lie. Maybe it was a big lie. So I set up a voice line so you can call and leave me a message whenever you want. The number is 919-444-2280. Again, the number is 919-444-2280. And don't worry, I'll leave the number in the show notes. And just a reminder, because it's coming up on July 13th, I will be part of a panel for the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago. So if you're anywhere near that area, you should totally come. Because there's going to be so many podcasters there. Uh, Check it out on their website, tcpf2019.com. There's going to be so many great shows. You don't want to miss it. Okay, guys. Well, I'll see you in two weeks with the next Fugitive Story. You're going to love Jack. It is in human nature to have extremely enjoyable feelings that make you feel guilty. Join me, your host, the one and only Father Sin, every week while I delve into the inner workings of the human mind in my own twisted and sinful way on The Sinful Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018, is based on my five-star rated guided walk, and features more than 300 untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, 
old cases through a fresh pair of ears, and classic cases with a twist. All researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favourite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening, and stay safe. Creative Babble.